Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today we have an awesome conversation for you to discuss a brand new forthcoming report. Its name is the Laffer Alec Report on Economic Freedom, Grading America's 50 Governors. Joining me to discuss this report first is Dr. Arthur Laffer. He's an American economist who first gained prominence during the Reagan administration as a member of Reagan's Economic Policy Advisory Board. He's best known for the Laffer Curve and was recently awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in June of 2019. Dr. Laffer, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having this. Also joining me is the lead researcher, Donna Arduin. Donna, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. And we also have the ALEC chief economist, Jonathan Williams. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. Well, thanks, Dan. It's uh, great to be part of this conversation. Of course. So just to start things off, I'd like to start with Dr. Laffer. Essentially, With this report, with this scorecard, we are ranking the governors. And just to lay out the field very broadly, why rank governors at all? I mean, why rank them now? What's important about this? Well, two reasons, if I can. I mean, one, you want an informed electorate. You want that electorate to be informed objectively. And therefore, what we try to do here is to rank all the governors on the same criteria so that we come up with an objective ranking so that voters understanding what the criteria are, are able to make good decisions. In addition to that, I mean, we want to rank the governors to just maybe as a guide for them as well as to what type of policies they would find effective in doing in their states. Now, I started this in 1978 with the Proposition 13 in California. After seeing what happened to the state of California post Prop 13 is when I started ranking states. And I ranked all 50 back then, and then that morphed into finally being Rich States, Poor States, the publication for ALEC, which is just, a, I think, phenomenal there. It not only morphed into that, but it's been improved over the years quite dramatically. This is our first attempt at governors. And as such, I would hope this would increase and improve over time and that in a few years, this will become a far more useful tool for uh, guiding governors as well as for selecting governors from the standpoint of the electorate. But it is a consistent set of criteria applied to all the governors. Some of those criteria may be a little less relevant for one than the other, but nonetheless, we have made this objective such that the rankings come out objectively so that anyone could duplicate what we have done in an objective fashion. And that, to me, really important. Yeah, I mean, it really is an objective scorecard that has variables that make it up. I think that's a great segue for us to talk about that now. Donna, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what the main factors are that make up the governor's scorecard? Essentially, you know, what are the report criteria? Why did you choose those criteria? And then how are those specific points that you chose representative of executive behavior? Great. Thanks, Dan. You know, there's numerous ways to look at fiscal policy. We ended up using 10 fiscal policies as the most important, not only because of our decades of experience working with governors and knowing that there were things that just drive economic outcomes more than others. But as Arthur mentioned, we also had used solid methodology, which showed over time that these are the fiscal policies that drive economic outcomes. Those include tax policies, which are the current policies, proposals of sitting governors, spending policies, their spending proposals of the last couple of years, 
welfare policies that they may not have proposed, but they certainly can change if your welfare dependency and your requirements to work in the state aren't where they need to be. We would expect them to try to change them. CARES policy, which includes numerous things, including how the money is being spent and how they're handling, in the fiscal sense, they're handling of CARES policy is going to drive a bigger hole in their budgets down the road or if they're taking care of it now. We also have a separate CARES policy grade for the economic handling, including mandate of each of the governors. Um, Education policy, including educational choice, options, scores, and spending for pupils in the state. Union policy, which includes the number of state employees plus right to work, and whether or not these current governors were proposing, you know, big increases for um, state employees in, in their states. We have debt results, which is important, especially going into the COVID, the, in, including their unfunded liabilities. Spending results, which is how much is a state spending for its personal income or GSP. And that's a very important measure for us because you know, we look at governors like, you know, some of them have a harder degree of difficulty than others. If you come into a very high spending state, you have to do more to get your spending down and propose reductions in spending than those that inherited a low spending portfolio. Uh, we also have for the COVID preparedness results. So whether states were building up, these governors were building up their reserves going into the COVID pandemic, not that we expected them to foresee it, but something's always going to happen. And then finally, and probably most important, economic performance, focusing on, you know, money and people moving in and out of the state. Thank you for that, Donna. And I think it's really important you guys included a section on the CARES Act and also, you know, related to COVID-19. They would probably not be very smart not to. But it's probably important for us to cover for our listeners the importance of what COVID-19 did when it comes to executive action. So can you talk to our listeners about the role that COVID-19 played when it comes to both executive action and just, frankly, their behavior? It plays a part in numerous ways. So, again, from a fiscal perspective, you know, were governors prepared in the sense that they were building up reserves, knowing that something's always going to happen, even whether they did or not? When COVID monies came from, you know, Washington, D.C., what did they do with them? And we had some governors who have said, we don't even want this money. We don't want to spend it because we're just going to be pushing our fiscal problems down the road. We had governors who, during their you know, their fiscal years, for most of them, ended in June. So it was a really tough time. But we had some that, you know, took action even before the end of the fiscal year. Some that took action by vetoing things they'd even proposed to spend um, pre-COVID. And then we've had governors since June come in and start preparing to cut their budgets for for the next fiscal year, when they'll be proposing a budget most likely in January. But some of them are telling their agencies and letting their constituents know that they're going to have some be facing some significant budget reductions in the near future. And Dan, this is Jonathan. Uh, you know, this is a this is a really I- important topic that we've followed uh, from an ALEC perspective and looking at really kind of the balance of power between branches of government, right? And and some governors, and I, I think it's kind of important to start by saying President Trump deserves a whole lot of credit because in the face of withering criticism, 
he decided not to nationalize many of the public health decisions, uh, such as a national mask mandate or other things like that, that uh, certainly the, the liberal media would have liked to see him uh, have done it at a federal level. And he allowed governors to govern at the state level, and he allowed federalism to work. And that's something I think we can all be proud of, regardless if we agree or disagree with various governors' decisions on what they did to face with the public health crisis or the, the spending and budget crises that then happened at the state level, they were able to innovate and be the 50 laboratories of democracy, of course, that we want the states continue to be. And you know, one of the big flashpoints that happened in this session was you know, the debate between the legislative branch and the executive branch about proper authority of state government. And we've had now the judicial branch, the third branch of government, have to come in and adjudicate many of these disputes. And in fact, uh, our ALEC uh, Legal Center and Jonathan Howenschild on our policy team uh, has worked to file amicus briefs, uh, for instance, on the pending case that the Michigan Supreme Court is hearing right now between uh, whether Governor Gretchen Whitmer has unlimited emergency power authorities to continue indefinitely on those emergency power rulings, or if she needs the consent of the legislative branch. And of course, separate decisions were made over COVID uh, relief funds coming from Congress, from the CARES Act and some of the previous packages, where some governors, I think in, in a lot of cases, exerted executive branch overreach and took authority over spending those funds without legislative branch uh, approval and the kind of the power of the purse that resides in the spending uh, powers of the legislative branch. So it's been a, I think, a really interesting case study in uh, federalism and allowing that to play out in the separation of powers debate. Uh, and once again, some states have made really good decisions, others maybe less desirable decisions, but it's so important that we've had this debate at the state level and not be federalized by Washington, D.C., Jonathan, if I can just add to what you said there, if you remember right after the president made that decision, he got into this horrible conflict with Brian Kemp of Georgia and where the president disagreed totally with what Brian Kemp was doing, but refrained from ordering Kemp to follow his instructions, which was a perfect example of why you like to have the states making decisions rather than the president and why the examples there of state experimentation really are powerful. As you, as you may know, Georgia ended up being second on our uh, out of 50 states in the rankings of the governors. And also to follow up, you know, I talked, thank you, Jonathan and Arthur, I talked about the fiscal rankings. But in addition to that, you know, Steve Moore has been following the economic response of each of these governors and, you know, putting out briefs daily since the beginning of the pandemic. And um, the responses are going to have a tremendous effect on the economies of these states and then ultimately the budgets. So we have a significant grade for those economic and mandate responses as well. Jonathan, Dr. Laffer began uh, the conversation today talking about some of the set ingrained policies that he's been studying for years and it's made its way into this report and also another seminal ALEC publication, Rich States, Poor States, that you're one of the lead authors on. Jonathan, can you talk to our listeners about the importance of those shared policy variables, you know, what they are and why they matter? Well, absolutely. And it's a great question because as Arthur has studied now for decades, I mean, we know that the policies that we measure in rich states, poor states, and in the governor's report are things that matter absolutely for the future growth and prosperity of the states. Uh, and they're nonpartisan variables. These are things that both Republicans and Democrats and independents, libertarians, vegetarians can get behind. It's something that everyone can like, right? And uh, they produce 
growth. We know that reducing tax burdens, reducing regulatory burdens, having more freedom in the workforce and with labor policy are good for individuals. They're good for the business environment. They're good for job creation. And you see a lot of commonalities uh, between the categories, at least, of variables. Obviously, we measure governor's actions versus, let's say, overall state actions in rich states, poor states. There's a degree of difference there. But there are things that matter for growth, and there are things that state legislators and governors directly can control at the state level. And that's what makes it so powerful. There are things that legislators change. There are things that governors can change. And there are things we know, not just based on theory, but based now on decades worth of practice that matter a huge degree between a growth or lack of growth at the state level. So this is more of a a question for Donna and Dr. Laffer, but overarchingly in this report, does it show a simple, you know, red-blue divide? Are all the Republicans doing great and all the Democrats doing poorly? Is that this kind of report? So absolutely not. We see um, both, you know, Democrat and Republican governors in the top-rated categories as well as in the bottom-rated categories. So again, you know, one might say, well, gee, they come into a state where, you know, it's already high spending and people and jobs and money are leaving the state for other states, but we expect more from those governors. So it doesn't matter um, whether they're red or blue. Um, We have the same criteria and expectations for both of them. And it's interesting how the grades have been distributed across the board. Yeah, let let me add, if I can, to it. If you look at the rankings, you will find a predominance of Republicans at the top and a predominance of Democrats at the bottom. But that's not because it wasn't an objective measure. The policies that these people have been following have been tax cuts, pro-growth, economic agenda. Those are the things that we value very highly for both the rich states, poor states, as well as for the governors. So it shouldn't be surprising that there are similarities in the top group and similarities in the bottom group. But There are exceptions all the way across the line. And as Donna says, there are some Democrats that have done very well, and there are some Republicans that have done very badly. But the Republican policies do tend to be more pro-growth than the Democratic policies as a general statement. That's right. And Arthur, I'm never surprised working with governors, and I say this all the time, I'm never surprised that those who already have low spending and high-performing states are the ones that are proposing tax cuts and aren't proposing to spend, you know, high levels of spending. It's very true. And, you know, if you look at states, you know, I've just had reason very recently to go back and look at economic growth of states and migration of states. And there's a huge amount of serial correlation. States that are bad have stayed bad. States that are good stay good, although they do deviate. For example, in 1965, some of you I weren't there then. I was the only one there then. But in 1965, New Jersey had neither an income tax nor a sales tax. It was one of the fastest growing states in the nation. It was running a budget surplus. And everywhere in the country, people were moving to get into New Jersey, not out of it. And of course, then starting really big time with John Corzine, who happened to have been a student of mine. uh, At that time, John Corzine, they had the highest sales tax, highest income taxes, highest property taxes, highest all taxes there. It was one of the slowest growing states in the nation, and uh, they were losing people like rats off a sinking ship. You know, when policies change, it's very hard to reverse them. But what this does, Donna, I think it starts the first methodological way of looking at what you have to do to be a good governor and what you need to do to the economy to get the performance back up to where it should be or to keep it up at very high levels. And if you look at some of the states here on the, on, on the highest rankings, I mean, these are states 
like Texas, like uh, like Florida, like South Dakota, like Utah, like Tennessee. Well, to Utah is not a zero income tax, but these states, Wyoming and New Hampshire, these states are all zero income tax states to begin with. It's not surprising that they would be carrying on those policies, if you say, Donna, of a pro-growth policies and keeping them going. But we're hoping this ranking will be able to give people a new guideline and allow them to make better decisions. Jonathan, how does this scorecard discuss fiscal responsibility of states? I mean, there's a huge conversation right now for a federal bailout of the states. Um, what do you think about that? Well, as, as, uh, as many of you know uh, that have listened to Alec podcasts and have, have watched what we've done as an organization, we've been very active in this debate in Washington and the state capitals to educate on why it's such a bad policy choice to pursue a federal bailout of the states. Uh, we've gone through this multiple iterations of times over the years when there's a financial crisis. The inclination always is for the federal government to come in and seize more control and to, quote unquote, help out the states by bailing them out with their own dollars. The problem, of course, is is just because you federalize problems doesn't make the underlying problem go away, such as overspending, overtaxing, uh, let's say decades worth of pension problems in states like Illinois and others that have racked up the credit cards really to the max at the state level. And so getting to the fundamental issues of state governance is essential here because if we set the stage and really present a moral hazard type situation where we incentivize states to do the wrong thing because if they expect a federal bailout every time there's a crisis or some sort of economic downturn, then what incentive do those policymakers, governors, or legislators have to address the big picture issues and to balance their budgets in a responsible way and to keep tax burdens in check? If they can socialize out the cost of their overspending and poor decisions to taxpayers from the other 49 states, we've created a challenge that's going to be very hard to overcome. And so our ALEC legislators, now more than 200 of them, as well as 1,500 other state leaders have come together and signed the ALEC letter saying thanks but no thanks to a federal bailout of states. We worry about the idea, we've talked about this uh, already here today on federalism, uh, that one of the guiding ALEC principles. If we believe in federalism, we must allow states to govern themselves and be these laboratories of democracy. If the federal government comes in and takes that decision-making away, we lose that powerful tool of tax competition and federalism and, and really what we believe in as a core principle at Alex. And Jonathan, just to pick up on that, in addition to socializing or spreading the cost to other states, many states who take or want these bailouts are putting themselves in a position of kicking the can down the road. And they're going to make their fiscal profiles much more difficult in the future, causing you know future large budget gaps and potentially tax increases in those states. Precisely, precisly. And when what we saw in the uh, Barack Obama bailout of states in 2009 with the AARA, we saw that be a huge problem in terms of the strings attached to the federal dollars, such as the maintenance of effort requirements that go really from dollar one of federal support into state budgets. Donna and Arthur, you know that better than anyone else on how problematic that can be. And we are uh, followed some studies that show for every dollar of federal aid that states accept, uh, it leads to a long-term tax or fee increase of 82 cents on the dollar on average. In some states, it's more than a dollar. So we're actually seeing a completely opposite unintended consequence uh, effect of uh, federal bailouts of the states. 
Dr. Laffer, you also began when we were starting off this podcast talking about the purpose of the scorecard to help produce an informed electorate and how that's so important. Donna, there are nine incumbent governors who are going to be on the ballots in November. Can you talk briefly about those nine? It, you know, from what I understand, it's a very interesting sample size of the scorecard because there are many that did well. And then just like the scorecard, many that did poorly and one that's kind of right smack dab in the middle. Yes, it was interesting that there was really only one in the middle. The top performers who are up for election in November included Indiana Governor Holcomb, Missouri Governor Parson, New Hampshire Governor Sununu, and North Carolina Governor Cooper. They've not only continued pro-growth policies, or in some cases, you know, changed the balance of their policies to make them more, but generally speaking, as Arthur and I were saying, states that are good continue good policies, by and large. But in addition to that, these are the governors who are proactively reducing their costs now in the pandemic that's also causing a fiscal crisis for the states. They're proactively cutting budgets and making very solid statements to constituents that they're not going to raise taxes in order to fix the problem. And what are those states that aren't doing well? So on the other side, we have governors with poor grades. And again, they come across, you know, red and blue, but Delaware's governor, Vermont, um, Washington's and West Virginia's. And again, some of some of those governors inherited a tough fiscal portfolio. But again, we expect more of them. So uh, we have both Republican and Democrat governors in uh, with the lower grades in the study. You know, they're going to be those those are governors and those states, whether they win re-election or not, they're going to be facing significant fiscal problems just exacerbated by the current crisis if they're not doing anything to fix them. And when they're already in, in high spending states with people and, and uh, jobs leaving their states for other states. We clearly have the most expert panel to discuss governors and their scores. So thank you to all of our guests today. Um, that does bring us near the end of our segment for Alec Across the States. I do want to give all of our guests one final question for their final say for the Alec Across the States listeners who are regular folks, state legislators, and policy experts from all across the states. So if you are a person in a state, a state legislator or a policy expert with a strongly graded governor or a poorly graded governor on the ballot coming up, of these nine states that we've discussed, why should they take these into consideration? Why should they think twice about their governor? When you look at these rankings, when you look at especially at the nine who are running for office, I think it's really important to take into account other factors as well, as we've mentioned here. But this is the start of your analysis. We did not want to put a thumb on the scale to change the rankings that were objective by putting in subjective matters. So this is the beginning start for an, a very objective analysis of these governors. And then you want to do your own a subjective analysis so that you can make a good decision as to which ones to vote for and also as to what policies these governors should follow in the future. Well, and governors, you know, it's been my fortune to work in many states. And when I go from state to state, I try to bring the best of all states with me. Of course, you know, um, Alec has been extremely useful in being able to do that, you know, show governors and show policymakers and in other states what can be done and what works from state to state. So I think this is just a very clear way of showing that those things really do matter and they should pay attention to the best of those policies and those things that Alec 
gives them details and information and here's how to write a bill that will allow you to um, achieve similar outcomes. The report shows that not only policies matter, but again, that if you're in a state that's spending too much, you know, don't let your, don't let your budget directors make a fancy chart that makes it look like you're not spending too much. You're going to kill your economy, even if you try to fool yourself. What you do today matters. You know, what somebody did yesterday matters, but everything can change. You know, as Arthur said, talked about the New Jersey example. We talked about California more recently. Things can change quickly if these governors and legislators don't continuously improve policy. And Dan, I'd be remiss if I didn't just follow up on what Arthur said and that I think it's exactly right. This is a good starting point for the analysis. And just on behalf of an ALEC policy department, we've got hundreds of pieces of model policy that have been vetted by public and private sector leaders that have been proven to move states in the right direction, as well as great research help that we can provide for a legislator side and from governor's offices and how to move your state forward. So uh, we're happy to be there as that nonpartisan resource for legislators and the executive branch altogether. Well, thank you once again to all of our guests. I've been sitting down with the Alec Chief Economist, Jonathan Williams, Dr. Arthur Laffer, and lead researcher on this new report, Donna Arduin. I've been your host, Dan Reynolds, on another episode of Alec Across the States. If you are interested in having one of your ideas featured or discussed on Alec Across the States, do not hesitate to email us at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.